Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg, one of the co-lead pastors here, and I am deeply thankful that you're able to uh, find us on our online platform and join us as we engage together with God, a God who I think we are discovering in these days that we're living in is uh, maybe different and much bigger than we thought. Uh, so from that space, let's, uh, let's pray together. Hey God, I give you great thanks for this day and for your presence uh, in our lives, uh, that we get to experience and know you uh, in our day-to-day life, in all of our moments, um, that we know you are there. Uh, yeah, just give you thanks for your presence today, God, and do this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are almost halfway through our series on the book of Hebrews, um, uh, which isn't really a book, it's a letter. Um, And as we've discovered, it's a letter from uh, an unnamed author. Uh, It's a letter that is written to an unnamed audience. Uh, And this causes us some difficulty in interpretation. And I bring this up just quickly to remind us of this. And you might say, well, why is that uh, troubling? And so an example, um, if you didn't know me, and you read this letter that said, Dear Dave, how are you and your family doing? I hope well. I'm glad to hear that you were able to get to see Gene in March. I had an amazing time visiting he and Lynn last year. Also, thanks so much for the nice card you sent and for asking how Maggie was doing. After her surgery, it was difficult for her to deal with the front steps at the house, so we built a ramp to help her. As she rehabs, we're going to need to make sure to get out for some short walks to help her get back up to full strength and range of motion uh, so she can get back to doing the things she really enjoys, especially our family trips to the park. Anyways, just a quick note to say thanks and give you a little update. Many blessings, Greg and Angie. Now, if you don't know me at all, there's some key pieces of information in there that you might not have. But if you do know me, you would know some things. You would know that Angie and I had two Rottweilers. One of them was named Jasmine, and one was named Maggie. And if you knew us really well, you would know that at one point Maggie needed surgery. And you would understand some of these things to help make sense. If you didn't know these things, you might not have a good context to fully understand, like, oh, is this a person? Was this a dog? Was this a friend? Who's staying with them? Is it a family member? There's all these pieces that you might not have. And so this unnamed author and this unnamed audience make us do a little bit of extra work to try to discover some things within the text to try to figure out what's going on. So all that to say, um, we have been exploring this letter, uh, and through that we know that the audience has gone through some level of persecution, not to the point of death, but our author is concerned and seems confident that it's going to be heading that way. And so there's a level of Uh, concern that in the midst of this persecution, people are going to drift away from following Jesus and follow other voices that don't have that element of persecution attached to them. And so they're writing in concern. And that they're saying things like, you got to, you got to get this, you got to know this. And there's this thread that moves through the words and ideas and lives that are represented and shared in this letter, and that's that God is present and God speaks. And so we're encouraged several times in this letter to pay attention to what God says, for it is of the utmost importance. Now, for those of us that 
our parents, or for those of us who have ever been kids, we may have sat on one side or the other of a conversation that felt like this, where either we were saying to someone or someone was saying to us, hey, I need you to stop and look at me for a sec, pay attention, settle in, settle in on these words because they're, they're of the utmost importance. And it might be disciplinary reasons, it might be clarification reasons, or it might just be that we have some critical information that you need to hear. And in this case, again, it's a warning. Our author is saying, listen, pay attention so that you don't drift away. There's something you're gonna miss out on if you drift away. And in a time in our world where we're navigating the ever-changing landscape of a pandemic and in our country where we're confronting and being confronted again with the realities of injustice and inequality that we are discovering are rooted into the very nature of our country. And at a time when our country is feeling, and I believe it is, more divided than I can ever remember in my lifetime, I think we're often left wondering, where is this all headed? Will things change? Can things change? If so, what will it take? Who will do that work? Is there any hope? Today we're going to be looking at a section of this letter that deals with some of that. The section we're going to be looking at is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me there. The verses will also be on the screen, so you can read there. Or you can hit the Bible tab on the online uh, menu, and you'll have access to anywhere in the Bible you would like to go. Uh, But we're going to look at Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Here we go. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying... I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms that what is said, uh, and it'll put an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author here is assuming that The audience has a certain level of knowledge about some things and some relationships that I want to try to quickly uh, go over. First is the relationship between God and this person named Abraham. So Abraham is a person we encounter in the Old Testament and is actually one of the most famous people from the Old Testament. He's considered to be the father of the nation of Israel. And there are several spots that we read about this uh, in the book of Genesis, the very first section of the Bible. We hear about this idea, and in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this. The Lord God said to Abram, that was, he eventually had his name changed to Abraham, but he starts as Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then just a chapter later in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18, it says this. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east and west. 
all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so there's this reality in this story, this account of the story that's talking about how God is gonna bless Abram, he's gonna become Abraham, and he's gonna create a great nation out of his, him and his family. And the story goes, though, that Abraham and his wife grow old and they haven't had any children. And then at some point, they grow too old to have children. And so this promise is in question. How is this promise gonna be fulfilled? And soon after that, though, Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. And so then things seem to be moving forward. Here is the answer to that question of how is this promise gonna be fulfilled? It's happening right before their eyes, right in Sarah's body. The fulfillment of the promise, Isaac. And so later, we read in one of the most troubling stories in Scripture, where the account says that God instructs Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, up to a mountain and sacrifice him. And he does. He takes him up, and at one point, Isaac even asks, he says, Dad, I see the wood and all the stuff for the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice, for the offering? And Abraham says, uh, don't worry about it. God will provide the lamb. And they get to the place where God told Abraham to go, and Abraham is about to sacrifice not only the fulfillment of the promise, but his own son. And God stops him and says, no, don't do that. You have not withheld your one and only son from me, even to the point of death. And then Abraham looks, and there's a ram somehow caught up by its thorns. And so he uses that for the offering instead. Now, this is a hugely difficult story. And, and I, I don't want to spend a ton of time dealing with the difficulties of this. But I do know, I heard one time a gentleman named uh, Kent Dobson talk about his time in um, uh, with some Jewish rabbis that he was studying with talking about this. And, and one of his uh, professors at the time asked him uh, in his class to reflect on this story and then later in the week come back with any questions they had. And being good students, they went through sort of the, the structural format and the, and the literary structures and all those things and came back with their questions about that. And, um, and the professor said, okay, those, those are great, so is, but those are your your, your concerns about this? And they all said, yeah. And the, the professor said, you should feel blessed that those are your only concerns about this. That this story has so many things that should trouble us in it. Um, yeah. So, but with that though, um, we come right out of that into this moment in Genesis 22, 15, 19. Uh, this is right after that, and this is what the Lord says. It says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of their cities, of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So this is that moment that the author of Hebrews is referencing. I swear by myself, declares the Lord. And the author of Hebrews refers back to this moment with one main purpose. And that's to show that God honors the promises that God makes. That God is faithful. God promised a nation, many descendants, and now God is following through on that. And the author says that God does this interesting thing in wanting to make sure everyone understood what was happening and the intensity with which God was communicating that God swore an oath. But God doesn't need to swear any oaths. God is God, right? God should just say what God wants and then get to it. Right? Why does God have to pause and say this oath? And the author says something here that is really key, and I find it really amazing. The author says that people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath puts an end to all arguments. In another translation of the Bible called The Message, uh, author Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, when people make promises, they guarantee them by appeal to some authority above them. So that if there's any question that they'll make good on the promise, the authority will back them up. And nowadays, we might not swear on someone, but on something. We add something to our word to help prove that we'll be good on what we said. People might ask questions like, what kind of assurance do I have that you'll uphold your end of things? And so the author says that God wants to make the unchanging nature of God's purpose very clear. And so God confirms that promise with an oath that basically God speaks in a way that Abraham will understand. And God does this throughout scripture and throughout our lives. In fact, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews says in the very beginning of this letter that Jesus is. This external word, eternal word, fulfilling a promise and reflecting to us in exactness who God is and what God's purpose is. And it's a great blessing that God would speak to us and engage with us in ways that we can understand and follow. Even to the point where he would do things like take an oath It's not something that God needs to do, but for our sake does. And so God did this so that by two unchangeable things, it says, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. This section has always been confusing to me and lots of other people. It's like, okay, so there's two things, but it feels like there's one thing, and what is this? God's not able to lie in this. But, But what it is is that the two things in which it is impossible for God to lie is that it's God's promise and the oath. There's two things, the promise and the oath, and they both affirm God's faithfulness. What is it then that we're supposed to experience out of this, this faithfulness of God, this promise, this oath? What is it that the author of Hebrews is hoping that we're gonna experience and know in this? And that's hope. Well, what is hope? If I go to dictionary.com, it says this. Hope is a noun. In some cases, it means a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. I hope I get to eat ice cream tonight, right? That's a hope for a desire of something to happen. Uh, a person or thing that may help or save someone. Grounds for believing that someone, something good may happen. Or it can be a verb that we want something to happen or to be the case. One thing to note, though, is in the book of Hebrews, hope is never used to describe a subjective attitude. 
Instead, the community is led to consider the character of hope as promise and realization, announcement and fulfillment. Hope by our author is seen as an expectation of something that is fulfilled and that we can expect it because God has promised it. And we can see from the Abraham story that God is faithful and God fulfilled that promise. And then we can see from Hebrews that Jesus is the final ongoing fulfillment of the promises of God. And so we have this hope then, our author says, that's like an anchor for our souls, firm and secure, and it goes into the sanctuary behind the curtain. What does that mean? The curtain was this veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary in Israel's tabernacle. And only the high priest could go in there and only on this one specific day called the Day of Atonement. And we talked about some of that stuff in the high priest stuff and it's gonna come up more in this series. But this anchor goes past that into a place that only the high priest is supposed to be able to go to. And so Jesus, it says, has gone in there before us, in fact, on our behalf and made a way for us to enter. So we have a way to enter into the presence of God or the rest of God, as the author of Hebrews puts it, and we are tethered there by this anchor. Now, if you've ever been on a boat, um, you know that uh, just having an anchor uh, connecting you and firm and secure does not mean that you're just sit and chill and relax on the boat, right? That's not what happens. Uh, Some of you heard me tell this story before. I was blessed enough to go with uh, Andrew Roberts from here at One Life when we were uh, at UW, and uh, he took me on a boat, and I remember we slept on this boat, and we went, and we dropped anchor in this little harbor, and there was a little window in this one spot uh, off to my right side that I could see, and as I was awake, because the boat was moving, uh, and what to me felt like a lot, but was not that much. But through this little window, you know, off to my side, I would see the moon go whoop, whoop, zip, whoop. And I had no idea where we were. I had no idea what was going on. But I did have confidence that we weren't going too far away because we were anchored, right? It didn't mean that everything was just nice and chill but it meant I could have confidence and hope that we would be okay because this anchor was connecting us to the land. Um, and so the anchor imagery is not meant to, to, to make sure, to give us this feeling of sort of we're in this luxury space where everything is chill. It's that it's gonna hold us in the storms of life. That this hope we have keeps us attached to God in both the clearest skies and the strongest storms. A hope that goes beyond our life today and into eternity, giving us assurance that God's promise of his rest, rest in his presence is real. And God will be faithful to complete that promise. But that also our hope for that future reality has an impact and an expression in our lives today. But the the problem is that hope is elusive. Because it's not just a feeling or an attitude, it's, it's a state of being, and it's very powerful, and it can be placed or attached to the wrong things. Walter uh, Brueggemann, uh, theologian and scholar, in his book, Reality, Grief, and Hope, Three Urgent Prophetic Tasks, uh, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. as the defining historical event 
uh, event in the literature of the Old Testament, that the destruction and dislocation that followed that event amounted to a complete upheaval of every dimension of Israel's life, including their certainty of who God was. And he states that the theological crisis they experienced in this tied into three specific things. One, the confidence in their ideology of chosenness. This idea that they were chosen by God, this, this specific group, this Jerusalem establishment is what he calls it, that they were chosen by God. And so this fact that Jerusalem was destroyed threw that into chaos. In the midst of that crisis, then there's the second thing is this denial because that ideology has failed and is not sustainable. And then when that denial is broken, the third thing is they entered into this kind of despair when that, the reality of that system not being what they needed to have their hope in, when that system was broken and revealed, they entered into despair. And then he did a, did a really interesting thing and drew a connection between that event and the events that took place on September 11th, in which we've been living out since then. And I would add that the pandemic and the heightened awareness of longtime injustice and equality in our country add to this also. He says that these events create a similar theological crisis in our time and that for us, it's connected to a confidence in the ideology of exceptionalism and then a denial in the midst of that when that ideology is seen to have been failing or not sustainable and then finally despair once that denial is broken and reality is faced. When I look at the world today, I feel like I see that. I see a world struggling with a loss of an identity that has failed and is not sustainable. And the despair of many people is we can no longer deny the realities we see around us and as we don't know exactly what's gonna happen next. But it's somehow into this that hope finds us. There's a poem uh, called The Portal of the Mystery of Hope by uh, a, a French uh, Catholic guy named Charles Peggy. Um And in this, we find this poem and this poet who sings as they contemplate uh, what they refer to as the mystery of the second of the three theological virtues, being faith, hope, and love. Um, the poem was written in 1911 as the shadows of World War I were gathering over Europe, a, a war in which this author, Charles Peggy, believed it was gonna be the war to end all wars and that he was gonna die in this war. It was also a time of increasing political and economic tension, and for, again, for, for Peggy, it was... Uh, there was personal anguish in his own life as deep personal suffering was overwhelming him. And he offers in the midst of this without philosophizing or moralizing or prescribing this reality of hope. He liked to, uh, like the prophets did, discern God's presence in the midst of the concrete events of day-to-day -day life. And so he personifies faith, hope, and charity as three sisters, two older and one younger walking along, holding hands. They're walking the road to salvation, he says, a long, stony road. As they walk, faith is on one side, charity or love on the other. These are the two older sisters. And hope, the younger sister, is in between, almost hidden in between her older sisters. And the poet describes faith as this cathedral built on strong foundations, solid, ancient, lasting for centuries, like a steadfast spouse, faithful. 
Then charity is a hospital, an almshouse, and, and charity, she gathers up all the miseries of the world and welcomes the wounded, the sick, the sorrowful, and the unwanted. Charity unceasingly gives. But hope is a child, innocent, trusting. She carries no heavy burdens, and so she skips along between her two older sisters, carefree and joyful, and no one takes much notice of her. And the poem opens with God saying, faith doesn't really surprise me. Because don't I shine forth in creation, it says about God, and is not God revealed in the universe, on the face of the earth, in the waters, in the movement of the stars, in the wind, in all the peoples, and all the nations? The eyes of humanity only have to look at creation, says the poet, and we will be effortlessly carried into the realm of faith. And charity is also seen in this unsurprising way. After all, it says, if we are to love those close to us, we cannot avoid charity. And when we're surrounded by so many in need, the poet says, the desolate, the unhappy, the hurting people, that we would uh, need to have hearts of stone not to respond to them, our brothers and our sisters in their need. How could we not desire to share our bread with those who are hungry? Would we not indeed take the very food out of our own mouths, our own daily bread, and give it willingly to any hungry children who crossed our path? According to God in this poem, charity and faith are totally natural. And what God finds amazing is hope that we can see all that is around us happening today and still hope that tomorrow could be better. Faith and charity are comparatively easy and straightforward, but hope is much more difficult for the temptation to lose hope constantly hovers over us. And hope is like this flickering flame, almost feeble, but yet she cannot be extinguished even by the breath of death itself. That little flame will pierce the fogginess of this world. The little girl depicting hope is described as though she looks like she's being carried by her sisters. But the poem reveals the reality is that she is what moves the other two. As she holds on to her older sister's hands and swings herself forward, pulling them further down the road. I wonder if maybe this kind of image of hope is what we need right now, an act of playful imagination that's out beyond what we know. As a parent, one of the hardest phrases to hear from my kids has been this. Hey, Dad, I, I want to ask you something. You're probably going to say no, but because I sense in them a diminishing of hope or a taming of hope. How can I couch this? How can I play my cards right? Instead of just the pure, innocent wonder of whatever they're thinking, and I see how my role in that has, has pushed that down. God and the author of Hebrews have something different in mind. We have this hope like an anchor, this hope that connects us to the creator of the universe who fulfills the promises that they make. And God has promised all humanity, every one of us, an opportunity to enter into God's rest. But what does it look like? In our current situation, what this looks like is unknown. 
but I'm hopeful for a new tomorrow because I see God moving in this world. I see God not abandoning this world. I see God doing a new thing in this world. Jesus has become one of us and lived a full human life and died a full human death so that we can have this hope and live out this hope in this world each day in all of our moments, in our conversations, and in interactions with each other, in our walks, in our workouts, in our protests, in our acts of resistance, in our schoolwork, our vocations, in our rest, in our play. All the things we do, what is the thing that is pulling us forward like that little child swinging and just moving us along? I had an experience of this just this morning. Um, As we were getting stuff ready in here, uh, Rich brought to my attention uh, that there was a memory on Facebook that showed up on his uh, feed this morning And this was the picture that was there. And that this is eight years of Rich and I being the co-lead pastors here and getting to partner and work together, not just with each other, but with all of you um, in this amazing journey that we've been on. And my beard's a lot smaller. Yeah. And I wonder, what would I tell those two? What would I go back and say? And as I stand here today, I think I would say, don't give up. Hold on to hope. Let that be the anchor and let that be the joy in the clear skies and in the really strongest storms. Hold on to hope. So with that, I have a few questions that I want to ask you to think and reflect on. Um, In just a moment after I'm done with these, I will pray. uh, And then there will be a moment for you to write down your answers. You can also jot down notes uh, in the the notes uh, section of our online platform. uh, That's there for you to use too. Uh, Then Brian's going to come up. He's going to play and give you that time and then we'll close with a song. We also want you to know that uh, during that time that the, the prayer team will be ready and, and waiting to pray with you if you'd like prayer. Um, so here, here are the questions um, uh, for today. Uh, so number one, what did you hear God saying to you today through our time together this morning? So anything at all from anywhere during the time we've been gathered, what have you heard God saying? Number two, What are you hopeful for right now? What are you hopeful for right now? What do you sense kind of pulling you forward? Maybe to something unknown. Maybe to something known but really new. Maybe to something really familiar. But where does your heart jump a little bit? Next, three. What has Jesus done that has facilitated your hope today? What is it in the promises of God, in the life of Jesus, that you feel like, boy, my hope is really, it's tied into that somehow? So that's what the author of Hebrews is really trying to work with us. Here's God. God is faithful. What has God promised? God is good on his promises. So what, what, 
with Jesus is it connected to? And then lastly, number four, how are you participating in living out that hope in your day-to-day life? So what are you doing in all your moments that you can see that's tied to that hope? And maybe you feel like, oh, actually I'm not really doing anything, so I'm gonna start doing some stuff. Maybe there's some really significant things that you recognize you are doing um, and just identify those. So let me pray and then we'll have a moment more to reflect on those and then we'll close with a song. Please remember the prayer team is available too. God, again, I, I just give you great thanks for being able to be together here today. Um, yeah, but you meet us in so many different places in so many different ways. Lord, and that we can lean into your promises because you're faithful. And I'm confident that you don't want to just let this world be because you care deeply about this world. So may we also care. May we find in our hope steps that we can take to express that, to live that out. Lord, I pray we would allow hope to lead us um, into your presence so we can know you better and become more like you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.